HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Dan Bender. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our spring season begins with Gastronomica's newest issue, 23.4, now available online, and features conversations on food memory, community, and the meanings of sugar and sweets. And this special podcast is the first of a two-part mini-series on the meanings and history of sweetness in Japan and its empire. My guests this week are Eric Seeraf and Takeshi Watanabe. Eric is a professor at the University of Kansas, where he teaches courses on food history and pre-modern Japan. A specialist in traditional Japanese food ways, his many books include Japan's Cuisines, Food, Place, and Identity, and Oishi, The History of Sushi. And he is as well a member of the editorial collective of Gastronomica and completing a history of sake. And Takeshi is the author of Flowering Tales, Women Exercising History in Heian, Japan, and is an associate professor of East Asian Studies at Wesleyan University. His current research centers on representations of food and eating in pre-modern Japan. Eric joins us from outside of Lawrence, Kansas, and Takeshi from Westport, Connecticut. And I'm in Toronto, Ontario. Thank you both for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. So let's begin with something deceptively simple. I want to ask each of you, in academia, but also just in in ordinary conversation, what does sweet and sweetness mean to you? Eric, why don't we start with you? Wow, that's a big question, Dan. Sweet and sweetness. I mean, two, two meanings come to mind, and I think it's also reflected in what we wrote about. Uh, one is the literal sweetness, and then another is the metaphorical sweetness. 
what sweetness signifies. So uh, our our special section of, of the issue that you mentioned looks at both of these historically. What was used as sweetness and uh, how this notion of sweetness changes over time, uh, over the centuries in Japan. Um, in my own life, it, 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 I, I guess I, I, I fall into those two camps as well, you know, thinking about it very literally and uh, something is, that's metaphorically, uh, especially with Valentine's Day just, just happening. <laughs> All kinds of opportunities for both types of sweetness. Absolutely. This is a well-timed podcast. Takeshi, over to you. Yeah, I think uh, uh, for me, because I work in mostly Heian period Japan, which is 10th to 12th centuries, um, and it's a, and this period, uh, as our piece, introductory piece uh, shows, sweetness is not was actually quite uh, a luxury, right? And uh, certainly probably didn't taste the same as what we associate with sh sweetness or sugary sweetness uh, today. So there is that part of trying to problematize what exactly is the taste that we're talking about, right? And I think Eric's work often talks about this, like we, in, for pre-modern uh, recipes, we could have ingredients, we could have dishes, and we might generally know what goes into something, but how it tasted, right, and, and is, is really hard to pinpoint, because that's something that is just not really documented very well. And even today, with all the, you know, vivid images, HD, and, you know, all the cooking shows we have, it's still not quite, um, uh, you know, who, how we taste sweetness could, could vary from one person to the next, even within a culture, let alone over these vast distances. And in my own work, I, I and in teaching, especially at the university, I'm very interested in trying to you know, um, get people to question things, and even as a concept like sweet sweetness. And again, with Valentine's Day, you know, Eric just mentioned and uh, just coming up and we, and we often give chocolates to one another. It's become a global thing. But as uh, my own work tried to show, um, you know, people weren't love didn't necessarily have anything to do with sweetness or, or evoking sweetness had nothing really to do with with life, love and vice versa. You know, you're quite right. And I think, you know, just in English, the word sweet can mean so many different things, starting, of course, with the, you know, the, the slang that I'm sure all the teenagers are saying these days, oh, that's sweet. Um, but it, it's it's a way of operating with people. It's a taste. It's a flavor. Can you take us into the language of of, of Japan itself, Takeshi? Um, are the, is there a similar broad, both metaphorical and physical, biological meaning of the word sweet? I think so, right? Uh, I, but and, and here, I, I don't know the etymology of amai and, and umai, but, you know, the whole, um, it, 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 you can see that it actually is a very close word, right? And so etymologically, historically, I think that there was a sense that things that are sweet was also umai, delicious, right? And that there could have been a kind of conflation and where that distinction came in is, is hard to pinpoint. 
um, our introductory piece in Gastronomica does try to articulate some of the ways in which uh, sweetness does come up metaphorically in the meaning, right? And it seems to be a positive kind of, of, of term, uh, but maybe it has something to do with the fact that sweetness was actually not a prominent flavor in pre-modern Japan. Today, um, actually, Japanese washoku, Japanese cuisine features a lot of sugar, actually, kind of hidden in a lot of, uh, of dishes, like the teriyaki sauce, or even sushi has the meeting in it, right? So, and, and rice itself is actually, uh, and mochi um, is sweet, right? But it's, it's a little more nuanced. And I think that ambiguity and that restraint, perhaps, uh, uh, does color some of the ways in which it was used metaphorically as a word, as a metaphor. You know, and as, a, as I'm listening to that list of, of ingredients there, Eric, you're probably going with exact same thoughts. Some of those are sugar sweets, but some are a whole range of other sweets and sweetness. Eric? Right. And I would just add on to what Takashi was saying. You know, the word sweet in, in Japanese, amai, uh, wasn't always positive either. Um, someone in the medieval period called sweet, uh, well, that's sim similar to what people in Chicago call a bitch ass. Uh, someone who's not really, you know, all, all there in terms of, uh, of, of their humanity, I guess is a way of defining bitch ass. Uh, but anyway, uh, long and short of it, it's not always a positive thing to have something sweet. And things, you know, that were called sweet back in the Han period when uh, Takashi works uh, wouldn't be necessarily called sweet today. Nuts, for example, were sweets. Uh, fruits were sweets. Uh, and, and literally, those were kashi. And that's the term that we use for sweets today. But, you know, back at, back in in different periods of time, those kashi could be all sorts of different things that some of them uh, were, were quite savory. And yet still called sweet. And, and yet still called sweet, yes. So this is a great opportunity for us to, to go back into the past. And as you both know, we're just after Valentine's Day when across the globe, you know, literally trillions of tons of sugar uh, have been exchanged for a whole range of different reasons mostly about love, I suppose. And Takashi, you bring us into the romantic world of two Japanese poets. Um, excuse the pronunciation, but Ueno Masahira and Akatsume Eimon. And they wrote in the Heian period, a period that you study, that's approximately, I guess, from 794 to 1185 CE. Can you introduce them and then tell us Within, in the spirit of Valentine's Day, tell us something about their love and courtship. Yeah, well, uh, the Heian period, it's, it's, it's actually contemporaneous, or that's the, they were, the two were contemporaneous with uh, Murasaki Shikibu, the author of The Tale of Genji, which a lot of the listeners might know, and it's purported to be the world's first novel. Uh, and these were very erudite aristocrats, right? Uh, they were not your know, run-of-the-mill uh, people necessarily. Um, uh, and um, this is the, the golden age of Japanese court culture, uh, as the tale of Genji also demonstrates. And so their courtship was rather erudite, I would say, right? And uh, rather than maybe even seeing each other, 
in this period, men and women were at, at the top ranks, at the, at the top of society, um, making acquaintance through uh, words, actually, through poetic exchanges rather than meeting face to face. And so um, these poems that I examined profess love, right, in, in, very, in, in very set ways. But what's really fascinating to me is that they evoke foods that we don't really associate with love, such as chocolate or things like roses, although, you know, or even any flower, really, uh, that, you know, we have uh, funa, right, which is a kind of carp, right? And it's, it's, it's a fishy fish, right? <laughs> or we have, um, we do have fruit, you know, the wine berry, for example, or what, what is referred to as Ichigo strawberry is the more conventional translation. But the strawberry in Japan today, or the one we think of, is not the one that Akazome Emon was referring to. This is more of a native uh, berry in Japan. So, um, it, again, I think it's just so interesting that maybe today, intuitively, maybe because of marketing, because of industry, that we think of sweet love as being associated with sweetness, with honey, right? With things that, um, but, but this sweetness just doesn't enter the lexicon uh, between these two. And instead, they have rather original kinds of metaphor uh, to talk about their love and to act, to profess love or to reject reject and go back and forth, In, including sending fish, um, a carp, yes, called funa, and and I just want to read for the listeners and then ask you to to comment on this. Just a brief part of that poem that he writes, where he says, "A man, Masahira." who cared for me, sent me, sent some funa. Let's transform into these fish to try this path of love. My guide, this boatsman, I got in the muddy Asuka River. So we have mud, fish, and a boatman. What makes this a love poem? Is it the wordplay? Is it the gift of the fish? Is it the fact of a gift in and of itself? Is it the taste of the fish? So that's a great question. And, you know, may, maybe you could argue that it's actually not a love poem, but it's a, a poetic exchange with a gift involved, right? And so that in itself in this period was something of a, uh, of a give and take, and, and they're not still – they're, I guess, to use a uh, anachronistic term, they are dating, I guess, or they're exchanging poems, but they're not really seeing each other on a day-to-day -day basis. And presumably, Masahira, the, the the man, got some funa that he, you know, and, and Asuka River is a is a very very historically important kind of river in a particular region. So maybe these were special funa. I don't really know, but the whole uh, funa to Again, it, 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 it is is something of a sexual illusion here, right? And there's something I think even that we can understand perhaps that's quite erotic about fish that's slippery. And there are a lot of these puns at work here that I'm not going to really go into, but the mud and, uh, and, and the Japanese original 
Japanese poetry works through puns. So a lot of the, the, the and the funa is a type of koi, harp, and koi actually means to love as well. So there are, there's a kind of double entendre there, both semantically with the words, but also image in terms of image, like let's all, let's like, you know, um, uh, it's like, you know, um, grovel in the mud and, and, and it's that kind of slippery, slimy kind of imagery there that's going on. That's quite actually very surprising when you think about the courtliness of the, these two, right? And how intellectual the wordplay is. At the same time, the whole imagery is actually quite erotic, which I just thought uh, was rather distinctive. And perhaps, uh, you know, in the Heian period, there were lots of taboos and restrictions, and this was the court. And so eating, it is it not necessarily a big topic in the tale of Genji? Right. And so but you can see that it's sublimated or there's another um, it's not directly evoked, but there is sexuality there uh, and eroticism if you know where to look or if you know what to listen for. And it's an eroticism that's that's based in this these gifts of non-sweet food. And, and, and here, here's a tough question. Um, and it's a tough question because I think it's an ahistorical question or it's asking you to speculate. Do you think that the gifts of fish and various other gifts that, that he gives that are not sweet, do you think that the absence of the of sweetness, of sweet things, um, the absence of sugar in particular, meant that love was not thought of in terms of this particular taste. P perhaps, right? That there, there were sweet things like amazuru, right? There, that's a, a sweet kind of vine, and there were fruits and nuts, right? And fruit, and, and, the, and I mentioned the wine berry, but the sweetness is not really particularly relevant, even in that gift. It's more the color, and there, that example, the color is ruby red, and it's kind of tied to bloody tears, which sounds kind of very um, macabre, but it's actually thought that if you're really in pain and suffering, you'll, 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 ha you'll, you'll, you'll tear up, your tears will turn bloody. But putting that aside, I do think that hmm, what might be more important or most important is how the verbal um, connotations or homonyms that exist, right? And so the other example uh, that or the the plant or the vegetable that comes up most often with love poetry is seaweed, right? Which doesn't really sound all that well. I, I, well, it doesn't. It may not be sexy to us today and to Japanese youngsters, but uh, there is a slipperiness and kind of a rot. You know, I guess you could make it erotic. Um, and, and again, it has more to do with verbal play, and that I'm not going to really get into. But it's very sophisticated. And it has to do with imagery of like uh, women divers that are still uh, working in Japan today, collecting seaweeds. And, and they are rather eroticized, even in Edo period prints. And, uh, and then so there's, there's a whole kind of different, you know, the world has gotten a little more boring these days, I think, with globalization and with standardization. Yeah, and commodities, right? But there's a whole, there, the, like, you know, I, I encourage everybody, especially the young folks who are, you know, involved with romance to kind of think outside the chocolate box and to really think about different wa ways in which maybe 
they can talk about their love or passion and different ways to express it and, and different words, different things to, to represent love. Which is a beautiful time to take a short break. And we'll be back in just a moment as we move from love to mold. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Dan Bender talking with Eric C. Rath and Takeshi Watanabe about their special section in Gastronomica issue 23.4. We were just talking about some love poems and the gifts of food and where sweetness was and perhaps most dominantly where it wasn't. We move from love poems to The Idiot's Guide to Sake Brewing. Eric? Sounds like a very modern title, doesn't it, Dan? It does. Yeah, it's a work from the 17th century, and probably the best guide to understanding what brewing was like in early modern Japan from the 17th century to the 19th century. It was never published, but it was copied, uh, and quite frequently, so we know that it had a sort of authority about it. And I guess you mentioned that because it's one of the sources that I look at when I'm trying to trace the history of a very important important mold called koji. And koji is used in all kinds of things in Japan, from soy sauce making uh, to pickling, and then, of course, to sake making. And the focus of my article was about koji, its history, its role in sake making in the early modern period, and how it's critical for fermentation and then also for sweetness. And there's the tie-in with the special issue uh, on sweetness. You know, and I, 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 before we get to Koji, I wanted to ask you about your, how you came across this particular um, guide and, and in particular, because I believe you were the very first one to translate it now. Uh, yeah, I didn't translate the whole thing. I just translated parts of it. Um, it's, you know, the Japanese scholars are really good about making available uh, modern annotated versions of a lot of pre-modern sources, especially culinary texts. And this is one of them. This is uh, very uh, well annotated and it's a modern published version um, by a very prominent scholar of sake even. So uh, I really relied upon his notes in translating. It was very helpful. But there's all kinds of gems out there for people to, to, to translate. Worth translating. Oh, worth translating, most definitely, yeah. So we, we don't get sake without, without koji. No. It's an important part of the, the process of, of 
getting alcohol from rice. Right. Exactly, Dan. Uh, With beer, you malt barley, and that's how you can unlock uh, the sugars from the grain. Well, you can't uh, can't, uh, malt rice after it's been polished. So what people do is they use this wonderful uh, filamentous fungus, koji, and koji, uh, through its enzymic activities, helps break down the starches in rice into sugars, and that makes them available for sweetness, and then also for yeasts to munch on and for, to give us lovely alcohol. So without koji, you wouldn't have sake, you wouldn't have uh, soy sauce, you wouldn't have so much of Japanese food culture, which is why uh, many in Japan call koji Aspergillus orzai is its technical term. Why they call it Koji, Japan's national mold. So before we get to what it means to have a national mold, am, am I going too far in my reading of your, your interpretation here that the sweetness was more for the yeast in some kind of symbiotic relationship and that what we get out of sweetness when it comes to sake, with some exceptions in the sweet versions you talk about, but that what we get in this is alcohol. But the sweetness is not for our taste, but for the yeast. I think that's the way it worked in pre-modern Japan, uh, because more important than the sweetness was the kick that the koji could provide, the alcohol. Uh, That's what was really Uh, what was sought after. And indeed, if you had too much sweetness in your sake, it could go bad. So there was a preference for dry sake for transporting it. People would actually add distilled alcohol to the sake to make it drier uh, so that it would have a higher, longer shelf life. Um, So today, of course, we can have all kinds of different range of sake from the very, very flavorful, umami, rich sake to very, very ethereal, almost like vapor-like sake when you drink it. It disappears in your mouth. And then sweetness is one of the flavor profiles that we enjoy in sake. Uh, But back in the pre-modern times, in the early modern periods, uh, people had to be very careful about the sweetness. And historically, I argue in my piece that it's not the sweetness that koji provides. It's that alcoholic kick that's really important. And, and, And one more point I would add is that people didn't understand the role of yeast back uh, before the late 19th century. So they thought koji was what made the alcohol. Um, So that's another reason why they would focus on uh, the alcoholic part uh, activity of the koji and less on its sweetness. Yeah. And that's really anticipating where I wanted to, to talk about this concept of a, of a national, of a national mold, uh, a claim on koji almost as, intangible cultural heritage. And, you know, the idea of a national mold suggests a number of things biologically, that that you understand that what's growing on the boiled rice, that suddenly looking fuzzy to the naked eye, is in fact a mold. Biologically, you're you're putting it into a category. But we we know that because we understand something about its microbiology. But to go back to this idiot's guide, um, how did the Japanese brewers at the 17th century, how did they understand koji? How did they relate to it? Did they see it as a, 
a tool, something intangible? Do they see it as alive, a collaborator, a sweetener? Uh, well, the author of that text describes it as a ghost, a yokai, which is a type of, there's lots of ghosts in Japanese culture, but these ghosts uh, appear, yokai appear uh, with almost without uh, our understanding why. And they can become like poltergeists. So koji can go bad. And when it goes bad, it can ruin your whole koji room and ruin your whole batch of sake. So um, they're definitely not seeing it as a microorganism. They're seeing it as something um, ghost-like, if you will. Something that's they can manage, but maybe not completely control. And when, when does koji start being used for something other than sake is it used at any point in in the 17th century or beyond as something that can produce a kind of non-sugar sweetness well you know back in uh the heian period people can take um koji and make amazake which is a sweet sake uh, and that's used today as often as a substitute for sugar uh, because it is very very sweet but people uh, in the Heian period used it. Um, they would just drink it. It was it was uh, something. It's kind of like a imagine a hot chocolate, but without the chocolate taste, more of a ricey taste. That's that's an amazake. Is that something? You know, it it sounds. It's got the word sake in it, but it's non alcoholic. Uh, the way it's made, it's just you, you just heat heat up some rice that's been infected with koji in, in hot water. And there you have your amazake. That's one way to make it. Otherwise, you can use the leftovers from sake brewing. Um, so, koji, you know, its history is as 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 cloudy as 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 it is. You know, it's fuzzy. Uh, we don't know its its beginnings in Japan, but it's been applied to so many different foods in Japan, from pickles to sushi to soy sauce to sake. Uh, all sorts of different things, and so it's really made a great contribution. Yet people, you know, you did did all this for a thousand years without understanding that it was a microorganism. But again, but then again, people have been brewing around the world without understanding what yeast was. So it's a similar kind of thing. And I mean, it's a very interesting way of thinking about it. That instead of writing about it as an ingredient, one actually writes it as a biography. And that's a very, very different approach. Takashi, I want to bring you back into the into the conversation here and begin to look forward from the Heian period and and to start thinking about when sweetness and the meanings begin to change in Japanese history. You know, if I look around my house right now, sweetness is, is just utterly mundane, apart from the occasional tasty chocolate. It's just around vast amounts of it, even if I don't particularly seek it out. When did sweet flavors become important in Japan? When did they get associated to sugar? Well, sugar is, it was known, right? But it was medicinal for a long time and very luxury uh, and coming from China and imported to Japan. And really, I think sugar becomes more available, but still very, um, expensive and luxury, a luxury item, even in mm, 
very late Muromachi period, I think you have people like Oda Nobunaga, who was a warlord uh, known for uh, being open to the Portuguese missionaries. And so he is known to have um, uh, had competo, which are Portuguese uh, candies that were very sugary. And at the time, they were just astonishingly sweet and highly desired as a luxury uh, item. Uh, but it's more, I would say, in the Edo period that sugar does become a little more prominent in uh, cooking. But again, cane sugar is probably still very expensive. And in fact, the the, sugar, the sweet content of uh, Edo cuisine probably was more to do with meeting, which is a kind of a distilled, uh, uh, another uh, koji-related uh, sweet um, uh seasoning that's still used obviously in Japanese cooking today. But uh, I think you can look forward to another podcast down the road with Lillian Tsai when she talks about Japan's empire and the incorporation of the Nyukyu Kingdom, Okinawa, uh, and, uh, and also Taiwan. But it should also be mentioned that in the Edo period already, that Ryukyu, Okinawa was part of or being subjugated by the Satsuma clan in southern Japan. And that is where sugar was uh, coming from. Although, again, probably mm, relatively expensive and not as cheap of a commodity as it is today and as prevalent. And Eric, over to you. When Do you see sweetness as something in Japanese cookery that is a single flavor? Or is there an array of tastes that become sweet and do they perhaps have their opposite? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Dan. Um, a lot of a lot of that I think is is subjective, um, but in Japanese culture, at least, sweetness is often opposed to something that's dry in sake. So it could be amakuchi or karakuchi, something that's um, sweet or dry, dry as an alcoholic. Um, or it could be sweet as in spicy, but sometimes the spicy is not like a pepper spicy, but more like a ginger type spicy, uh, depending on the period. Um, I think, you know, the real turn in Japanese cooking becoming very sweet is in the 20th century. I think it's rather um, not, I mean, maybe Edo, or which becomes Tokyo, is 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 very distinct. It has, has sweet types of dishes like um, eel with a sweet sauce, um, that's popular in Edo. But really, with um, the establishment, as Takashi said, of Taiwan as a colony and as a source for sugar, sugar becomes much less inexpensive, um, and pe more people can incorporate it in the diet. And that's when you can see sugar being added to various recipes, even the rice for sushi uh, after the turn of the 20th century. But before then, like Takashi was saying, it, it was a, a very refined uh, elite foodstuff. Uh, white sugar is restricted to very elite sweets. There's brown sugar uh, from uh, the Ryukyu Kingdom, from Okinawa, but that's, that's for lower level sweets. And still, it's not that much very prevalent in the diet uh, until the 20th century. And that is where we pick up next week as we continue our, our sweet journey through Japan and its imperial history. Thank you, Takashi. Thank you, Eric. And listeners will be able to read their fascinating articles, maybe learn something about how to write love poems and give better gifts, and how to brew sake 
In Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, issue 23.4, which is now online. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. And join us next week for part two, when we continue our discussion on sweets in Japanese history as we talk with Lillian Tsai about confectionery in colonial Taiwan. And of course, subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts to stay updated on our newest episodes this season. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.